This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Before we begin today, a short housekeeping note. Occasionally, we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell. To signal a sidebar, a look at a special topic. Today's sidebars include, what's a bloomer? Who was Erie's own Henry Burley? Who was Odetta? And we'll also be looking at a couple of others. The bell. The bell signals a sidebar we'll probe. What is the American Tapestry Project? The American Tapestry Project seeks to find the pattern of American culture created by the many threads of our many stories. Threads, which are what St. Augustine meant when he said, a nation is a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. So, we have to ask ourselves, what do we love in common? One of the things Americans love, it turns out, is music and songs challenging Americans to be true to the ideals they say they cherish. Last month, we began a three-part series on protest music and discovered that maybe the label protest music isn't quite accurate, doesn't quite fully capture the breadth and depth of what I am beginning to think of as America's, as America's freedom songs. Actually, many will claim that protest music, America's freedom songs, are among our most patriotic music. For, if one of the American Tapestry Project's major threads is freedom's fault lines, those tales of race and gender, those tales of exclusion and the many times America did not live up to its stated ideals, then protest music, the songs those excluded sang as they fought for inclusion, then protest music is a key, a vital thread, in the American tapestry. For, as the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said in his last speech the night before he was murdered, That the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And those rights found some of their most memorable expressions in songs of protest. Songs exhorting America, as King said, Just be true to what you said on paper. One of the things we discovered last month is that this music is much older than many a myopic boomer might imagine. Older, older in fact, than the American nation itself. Although difficult to prove, it's entirely possible that the first American protest song was that venerable, that venerable children's tune, Yankee Doodle which began its career as a colonial American response to British insults. As we heard last month, while its musical form might take any shape from rock to classical to rap, a protest song, a freedom song, seeks to alter or change society's values, seeks to correct a wrong, seeks to bring American practice more in line with American values. It is cause-oriented, speaking to a social wrong needing correction. Protest songs are almost always linked to movements seeking social change. The role of the song, the role of music, is to energize the movement's supporters, to lift their spirits and to arouse their emotions. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Freedom songs invigorate the movement. They give it unity and spirit. In this episode, we'll explore the music of the women's movement, from, if not the earliest, then one of the earliest American songs protesting women's second-class status. The 18th centuries, the rights of woman, 
to the music that invigorated the 19th century suffrage movement and late 20th century second wave feminism. Then, we'll pivot and explore the music of the civil rights movement's antecedents in African-American gospel music and the anti-slavery abolitionist music of the early and mid-19th century. We'll conclude by examining the bridge between songs of abolition and songs of the civil rights movement by asking, by asking who were the great black artists singing songs of freedom seeking civil rights? And finally, we'll look into the song most frequently identified as the greatest protest song of all time. One of the earliest songs supporting women's rights was an 18th century offering, The Rights of Woman, punning on Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. Bylined by a lady, the song was first published in the Philadelphia Minerva on October 17, 1795. Undoubtedly sweet music to Abigail Adams, who famously asked her husband John to remember the ladies, because every man would be a tyrant if he could. The Rights of Woman, set to the tune of God Save the King, sang, Let snarling critics frown their maxims I disown, their ways I detest. By man, your tyrant lord, females no more be awed. Let freedom's sacred word inspire your breath. Here are the Market Street singers performing The Rights of Woman. Not all 19th century women's songs sought the ballot. Many sang in opposition to societal restrictions placed on women. A song promoting women's right to access all of society's activities, The Bloomer's Complaint, The Bloomer's Complaint supported less restrictive, looser, and freer clothes for women. What's a bloomer? In the late 19th century, a large, baggy sort of pantaloon came into vogue. They were called bloomers. Women who wore them, Women who wore them were also called bloomers. Women found them liberating and fought for the right to wear them. Their song of protest was The Bloomer's Complaint. Combining an appeal for freer clothes and the right to vote, it also supported women's right to ride a bike. At the time, bicycle riding was thought improper and risque for a woman. Although baggy, bloomers afforded women the freedom to ride a bike. And in riding, they found liberation. Susan B. Anthony said, I'll tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world. I rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. It gives her a feeling of self-reliance and independence the moment she takes her seat, and away she goes, the picture of untrammeled womanhood. 
Not everyone agreed. 1895's Eliza Jane satirized the desire to wear bloomers, the freedom of bicycle riding, and the quest to vote as scandalous risk-taking by otherwise proper women. Its refrain goes, Oh, have you seen Eliza Jane a-cycling in the park? Oh, have you seen Eliza Jane? The people all remark. No more do skirts enfold her, though much her papa grieves. For where you see the bloomers bloom, she sits her wheel astride. She makes a sight would stop a fight as in the park she rides. Here's Eliza Jane. Eliza Jane, she had a wheel, its rim was painted red. Eliza had another wheel that turned inside her head. She put the two together, she gave them both a whirl. And now she rides the parkway sides, a 20th century girl. No more do skirts enfold me, though much my papa grieves. But baggy trousers hold me in their big pneumatic sleeves. The way you see the bloomers bloom, I sits my wheel astride. I make a sight, but stop a fight as in the park I ride. Oh, have you seen Eliza Jane a-cycling in the park? Have you seen Eliza Jane? The people all remark. She shouts, hi, hi, as she rides by the little doggies bark. For we all have a pain when Eliza Jane goes cycling in the park. This is emancipation here, the woman movement's on. Eliza plans to be a man, it's sad to think upon. She thinks she needs the ballot now, her freedom to enhance. She wants to pose in Papa's clothes, it is for this she pants. The music of the women's movement covers too much ground for one episode. We can't possibly cover it all. The pun intentional will only hit a few high notes. Taking some clues from Harper's Bazaar, Harper Bazaar magazine's list of the 49 best feminist songs, well, that list ranges from 2020's WAP by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, whose extremely explicit lyrics, the magazine asserts, make no apologies for their salaciousness. Seven days a week, wet ass pussy, make that pullout game weak. Yeah, 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 yeah. You fucking with some wet ass pussy. Bring a bucket and a mop with this wet ass pussy. Give me everything. To such oldies as Leslie Gore's "You Don't Own Me." Change me in any way you don't.
to Loretta Lynn's The Pill, in which Harper says she basks in the newfound freedoms that came with birth control. You and me and and me when I was your girl Promised if I'd be your wife you'd show me the world But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun And every year that's gone by another baby's come There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill You set this chicken your last time Cause now I've got the pill To Aretha Franklin's respect, which we'll hear in a moment. Demonstrating that historical myopia for which millennials are famous, Harper's list slants to their current readership, omitting such older classic women's songs as Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, Janice Ian's At Seventeen, Helen Reddy's I Am Woman, not to mention Bessie Smith's St. Louis Blues and Sister Rosetta Tharp's Down by the Riverside. Two or three songs frequently cited as anthems of the women's movement demonstrate that protest songs can also be pop hits. As we heard last month, Helen Reddy's I Am Woman was a million-selling number one hit in 1972. Inspired by the suffragette movement, written by the Eurythmics Annie Lennox, who recorded it with Aretha Franklin in 1985, and often considered the anthem of the women's movement, is Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. Its chorus sang, Sisters are doing it for themselves, standing on their own two feet and ringing on their own bells. Sisters are doing it for themselves. Here is Aretha Franklin's iconic version. famous is Franklin's Respect, which sang not only of female empowerment, but also of black pride and the need for anyone, black or white, male or female, the need for anyone to be respected. It is considered one of the most influential recordings in pop music history because, as the Detroit Free Press's Kelly Carter said, it gave an anthem to the civil rights movement and, ultimately, it served as a call to arms for women everywhere. Or, to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr., Franklin's song invigorated both movements, giving them unity and spirit. Here is Aretha Franklin's Respect. Kisses, ooh, sweeter than honey. Ooh, and guess what? 
Like Respect, another song that bridges multiple movements and social causes is Sister Rosetta Tharp's version of Down by the Riverside. An African-American spiritual whose roots predate the Civil War, the song has inspired civil rights activists, women's rights activists, and, with its pacifistic imagery, the song is sometimes known as Ain't Gonna Study War No More. It has even been an anti-war protest song. Sometimes called the godmother of rock and roll, Sister Rosetta Tharp, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was a major gospel star of the 1930s and 1940s who blended gospel and spiritual music with the newfangled electric guitar, creating a sound that inspired generations of blues artists. Selected in 2004 by the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry of songs, of songs that are culturally or historically or aesthetically significant, Tharp's 1944 version of Down by the Riverside brings a classical spiritual and slave work song into the commercial mainstream. Sometimes listed as a women's song and, as I said, sometimes listed as an anti-war tune, it is really one of the great gospel, pop gospel songs that bridges the era between the 19th century abolitionist musical tradition, the African-American spiritual tradition, and the 20th century civil rights movement. Tharp's electric performances inspired a generation to break the shackles of Jim Crow. Although its lyrics vary from performer to performer, this is Sharp's. I feel so bad in the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the evening. In the evening. That's why I'm going to the to wash my sins away I'm going to lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside Steady, steady one no The abolitionist musical tradition that Sharps Down by the Riverside links back to has its roots in African-American spirituals and work songs created by slaves to help them both to, uh, both to endure a desperate situation and to sing a breath of hope for a better future. Because overt songs of freedom were too dangerous, they used Old Testament tales to sing of their suffering. Songs such as Come Along Moses and Samson connected them to the biblical Israelites enslaved in Egypt. The songs offered hope not only in some distant future, but potentially in the here and now. For, as Frederick Douglass wrote in, My Bondage and My Freedom, A keen observer might have detected in our repeated singing of O Canaan, sweet Canaan, I am bound for the land of Canaan, might have detected something more than a hope of reaching heaven. We meant to reach the north, and the north was our Canaan. Harriet Tubman during her daring journeys back south as part of the Underground Railroad movement, sang a version of the hymn Thorny Desert and the spiritual Go Down Moses to reveal her presence to slaves seeking help to run away to freedom. Who was Henry, sometimes called Harry, who was Henry Burley? In 1917, Erie's own Henry Burley composed a famous arrangement of Go Down Moses, which was sung by some of the 20th century's most prominent singers. Not sure what Burley would think of this, but here is Louis Armstrong doing an up-tempo version of Go Down Moses. Let my people go Now I'm 
ancient land Let my people go Oppressed so hard they could not stand Let my people go So the Lord said go down Go down Moses Moses A major figure in the history of American music, Burley, after whom the Erie School District's Pfeiffer Burley School is named, Burley was born in Erie on December 2, 1866. His parents, his parents were freeborn people of color. Burley's maternal grandfather, who had been born a slave, was Erie's lamplighter. He taught the spirituals to his grandson as they made their nightly rounds, lighting Erie's gaslights, singing as they went. After singing in local Erie churches, in 1892, Burley won a scholarship to the National Conservatory of Music in New York. At the time, it was headed by Antonin Dvorak, the great Czech composer, who, among many others, composed the American Tapestry Project's theme. Dvorak exhorted Burley and other students to go forth and create a national school of music. Burley did. At Dvorak's urging, Burley began to collect, to write down, and in 1911, to publish his ancestors' traditional songs. His 1916, Jubilee Songs of the United States, became the standard recital form used by solo singers and choirs, such as the Fisk Jubilee Singers, it became the standard of these traditional songs. As noted at the website, Song of America, Burley, a pathfinder whose work broke down color barriers opening up access to all forms of American music to all people, Burley brought the spirituals out of their plantation and minstrel settings, paving the way for artists like Roland Hayes, Paul Robeson, and Marian Anderson. A great singer and concert performer himself, Henry, Harry, Henry T. Burley died on September 12, 1949. Here is Paul Robeson singing Burley's arrangement of Deep River. Other abolitionist songs with roots in the spiritual tradition include Oh Freedom and Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, whose lyrics sing, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way from home. A long way from home. A much better version than my attempt at reciting is Odetta's classic version of Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes 
As her brief biography at historymakers.org states, Odetta was anointed by Martin Luther King Jr. as the queen of American folk music. An extremely talented soprano, Odetta Holmes was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1930, but she grew up in Los Angeles, where she studied music at Los Angeles City College. Although she worked in various touring companies, particularly one producing Finian's Rainbow, Odetta's career as a folk singer began in San Francisco, before she moved to New York, where Harry Belafonte and Pete Seeger introduced her to larger audiences. A campaigner for social change, she performed at the famous March on Washington in August 1963. Legend says it was Odetta who told Dr. King, who, in the sweltering heat, was losing the audience, Odetta told Dr. King to tell them about the dream. And she marched in Selma, for voting rights and dignity. Odetta has sung with symphony orchestras and operas worldwide, but her renown rests largely on her presence in the folk music scene, including performances at the Newport Folk Festival and concerts at Carnegie Hall. Recipient of numerous awards, including the National Medal of the Arts and Humanities from President Clinton, Odetta died at 77 on March 2, 2008. If Odetta crossed the bridge from folk songs and earlier abolitionist music to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, then Leadbelly, the Weavers, and Pete Seeger can be said to have had a hand in building and completing that bridge. As we heard in previous episodes, sometimes a song not written as a protest becomes thought of as a protest song because of its association with a cause. The classic example is Leadbelly's version of Goodnight Irene, which came to be understood as a protest against Jim Crow laws causing black anguish. Leadbelly never claimed that he wrote the song, but he adapted it while in prison in Texas. A social outcast, Leadbelly sings he could only see Irene in his dreams. Here is Leadbelly's version of Good Night, Irene. After Leadbelly died in 1949 from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, the Weavers recorded a version of Goodnight Irene, and several months later, Pete Seeger recorded a solo version. The Weavers and Pete Seeger are major figures, arguably the major figures, in the folk revival of the late 1940s and 1950s, leading to the folk music resurgence of the early 1960s, and the protest music of the Civil Rights Movement. 
Emerging from the union movement music of the 1930s and the pacifist anti-war movement of the early 1940s, the Weavers grew out of an earlier group Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes sang with, the Almanac Singers. The Almanac Singers had a brief spot of popularity in the early 40s using folk-style singing to comment on current events. In 1948, Seeger and Hayes joined with Fred Hellerman and Ronnie Gilbert to found the Weavers, taking their name from a 19th-century German play, Die Weber, about a weaver uprising in 1844, they sang songs of workers' rights and social solidarity. Struggling to survive, sometimes playing gigs for as little as $15 a performance, the Weavers worked the Greenwich Village folk scene. After signing a contract with Decca Records, the group found unexpected success in late 1949 when two of their songs started to get jukebox play. Zena, 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 and their version of Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene. Folk purists objected to the addition of strings and a brass band to accompany the group, but the Weaver's version of Goodnight Irene sold over a million copies and went to number one on the pop charts. Their leftist sympathies snarled them in the anti-red fervor of the early 1950s, and by late 1952 the group disbanded. Pete Seeger, who thought working in a group limited his repertory and was uncomfortable with the group's commercial success and pop approach, Pete went out on his own. But before he did, the Weavers made a hit out of Goodnight Irene. Here is the Weavers singing Goodnight Irene. I'm gonna take another stroll downtown. Let me hear it now. Proving F. Scott Fitzgerald wrong, who once famously said something to the effect that there are no second acts in American life, the Weavers regrouped in late 1955 to play a sold-out concert at Carnegie Hall. Vanguard Records issued an album entitled The Weavers at Carnegie Hall, and the folk revival of the late 1950s and the early 1960s was born. The Weavers' greatest hits included such folk classics as If I Had a Hammer, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, Midnight Special, Weem Away, later made famous by the Tokens in 1962 as The Lion Sleeps Tonight, When the Saints Go Marching In, On Top of Old Smokey, and many, many others, including, including, of course, Goodnight Irene. The Weavers inspired a Rolodex of the era's folkies, such as the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, the Rooftop Singers, and Joan Baez. It was the Kingston Trio's Tom Dooley that broke the cliché dam and folk became, for a time, pop. Pete Seeger broke away from the group a second time and became the godfather, maybe more accurately, the grandfather of the folk movement, mentoring, among others, Bob Dylan, Don McLean, and, much later, Bruce Springsteen. It was Seeger who allegedly cut the cord on Dylan's electric guitar at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival. In a late-life interview, Seeger asserted what he did. What he did was say, if I had an axe, I'd cut the cable right now. Seeger later said he wasn't angry at Dylan for going electric. He was just upset at the poor sound quality. 
Sounds to me like a delayed rewrite for a softer ending. Seeger had been singing songs of protest since the late 1930s, heavily slanted towards unions and workers' rights, civil rights, and anti-war themes, first against American entry into World War II, but, most famously, the war in Vietnam. Two of his songs became movement anthems, one an anti-war anthem and one a civil rights anthem. The anti-war anthem was, Where Have All the Flowers Gone?, Seeger wrote it in 1955 while en route to a concert at Oberlin College, based in part on a Cossack folk song, Koloda Duda, and an Irish lumberjack melody. The song asks, "Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the flowers gone? The girls have picked them every one. Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn?" Here is Pete Seeger singing, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing Where have all the young men gone Long time ago Where have all the young men gone They're all in uniform Oh, when will we ever learn Oh, when will we ever learn? Seeger, a Harvard dropout, went to New York City in 1940 where he met Leadbelly, who introduced him to the blues, and where he met Woody Guthrie, whose idiomatic folk songs protesting injustice and advocating for the common people, well, Seeger really admired Woody Guthrie. Working first with the Almanac singers and then the Weavers, Seeger became the central figure in the folk revival. In the late 1950s, at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, Seeger reworked an old tune, transforming it into We Shall Overcome. Martin Luther King Jr., who heard Seeger singing it, Martin Luther King Jr. said, There's something about that song that haunts you. We Shall Overcome has a long history. With hints of two European songs from the 18th century, Prayer of the Sicilian Mariners and O Sanctissima, and echoes a song sung by black slaves such as I'll Be All Right and No More Auction Block for Me, the song also borrows lyrics from the Reverend Dr. Charles Tindley's I'll Overcome Someday. Its first appearance as a protest song was in Charleston, South Carolina, during a strike against the American Tobacco Company. Lucille Simmons, one of the strikers, gave the song its powerful sense of solidarity by changing the I to we. It was Simmons who brought the song to the Highlander School where Pete Seeger learned it. Seeger changed the lyrics from we will to we shall. Easy to learn, the song began to be sung at civil rights protests throughout the South and the nation. It's the genius of simplicity, Seeger said about the song in a later interview. Any fool can get complicated. Rather quickly, the song became the anthem of the civil rights movement, 
finding a rebirth in 2020 at the demonstrations protesting the murder of George Floyd, proclaiming that black lives matter. Its lyrics sing of solidarity and hope. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. Here is Joan Baez singing, We Shall Overcome. Coming out of the late 50s and early 60s folk revival, Bob Dylan, Tom Lehrer, Dave Van Ronk, Ian and Sylvia, Leonard Cohen, and others wrote and sang some of the most memorable songs advocating civil rights for African Americans. Phil Oakes is going down to Mississippi and Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, Oxford Town, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, and, of course, The Times They Are a-Changin' are among the most famous. Next month, we'll look into Dylan's ambiguous attitude towards his fame as a protest singer. But, for now, who were the great African-American protest singers and what songs were they singing? There are a number of contenders for Anthem of the Civil Rights Movement. We shall overcome the most obvious. But, Fannie Lou Hammer's Go Tell It on the Mountain needs to be near the top, needs to be near the top of any list. Who was Fannie Lou Hammer? Fannie Lou Hammer not only sang about freedom's struggle, she lived it. As her biography at the National Women's History Museum opens, Fannie Lou Townsend Hammer rose from humble beginnings in the Mississippi Delta to become one of the most important, passionate, and powerful voices of the civil and voting rights movements and a leader in the efforts for greater economic opportunities for African Americans. A sharecropper's daughter and a sharecropper's wife Hammer toiled on a Mississippi plantation where, since she was the only worker who could read and write, she also served as timekeeper. In 1961, while having surgery to remove a uterine tumor, she was involuntarily sterilized by a white doctor. As her biography notes, such forced sterilization of black women was so widespread it was dubbed a Mississippi appendectomy. Hammer became a leading figure in the drive for voting rights, 
She led movements in Mississippi in 1962, South Carolina in 1963, and most notably in Mississippi in 1964, the Mississippi Freedom Summer. She led the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party's challenge of the local Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, which motivated President Lyndon Johnson to press for 1965's Voting Rights Act. She became one of the first black women to appear in the U.S. Congress as she protested that 1964 Mississippi House election. In 1971, she founded the National Women's Political Caucus. In later years, frustrated at political progress's slow pace, she turned to economics and established the Freedom Farm Cooperative. At its peak, in the mid-1970s, the co-op was one of her county's largest employers. Sadly, In 1977, at age 59, Fannie Lou Hamer died of breast cancer. In a widely circulating internet meme, Fannie Lou Hamer is quoted as saying she became a civil rights worker because she was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Some people only talk the talk. Fannie Lou Hamer not only walked the talk, she sang it in memorable fashion, creating both a prophetic and pastoral style She recorded famous versions of This Little Light of Mine, Woke Up This Morning, and Wade in the Water. Proclaiming the civil rights movement's oncoming, her interpretation of Go Tell It on the Mountain adds the verse Let My People Go from the spiritual Go Down Moses about Moses leading his people out of Egypt. Here is Fannie Lou Hammer's 1963 version of Go Tell It on the Mountain. Some people, including the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., thought the Civil Rights Movement's unofficial anthem was the Impressions was the Impressions song, People Get Ready. By the time they disbanded and retired in 2018, the Impressions had become pop icons. With a changing mix of members and a repertoire that included doo-wop, gospel, soul, and rhythm and blues, they were inducted into three halls of fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, and the Grammy Hall of Fame. Although at one time Jerry Butler was a member of the group, the group's greatest fame occurred during the 1960s when, with Curtis Mayfield singing lead, they had a series of hits that that served as inspirational anthems for the civil rights movement, including Keep On Pushing, We're a Winner, and People Get Ready. Although not as explicitly a protest song as some others, Martin Luther King Jr. thought People Get Ready's message of deliverance, with its promise of a train a-coming, motivated his followers. For listeners found it easy to imagine their oppressors in that verse that starts, There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who had hurt all mankind just to save his own. Here are the impressions in Curtis Mayfield singing, People Get Ready. There ain't no room 
too many quality civil rights songs to do them justice in a single episode. From John Legend's Glory in 2014's film Selma, to James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, to the Staple Singers I'll Take You There, to Lauren Hill's Black Rage, to Public Enemies Harder Than You Think, to Nina Simone's To Be Young, Gifted and Black, and of course her Mississippi Goddamn, to Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues and What's Going On? The list is long. It's very long. As long as the list is, however, before turning to the song most frequently noted as the greatest protest song of all time, I want you to hear Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Although he died young in 1964, when he was murdered under circumstances still debated today, as MyBlackHistory.net remarks, Sam Cooke is considered the most important soul singer in history. The son of a Baptist minister, Cook first learned to sing in his father's church's choir. After moving from gospel to soul and rhythm and blues, Cook became one of the most popular singers of his time, popular in both black and white communities. A list of his hits includes You Send Me, A Change Is Gonna Come, Cupid, Wonderful World, Chain Gang, Bring It On Home To Me, and Good Times. Cook wrote A Change Is Gonna Come in October 1963 after he was arrested in Shreveport, Louisiana, when he refused when he refused to be turned away from a whites-only hotel that had originally accepted his reservation. Cook first performed the song on Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show in February 1964. The song does not directly confront discrimination, although it does say, I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keeps telling me, don't hang around. But... As Ed Maisley said in the Arizona Republic, it couldn't be more obvious what kind of change he's after when he hits you with that gospel-flavored chorus of, It's been a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Cook didn't live to see it become a civil rights anthem, but the song has been performed by hundreds of singers, most notably Aretha Franklin, who considered Cook one of the greatest male singers of all time. Here is Sam Cook singing, a change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. 
greatest protest song of all time? Obviously, one can disagree and arrive at no definitive answer. You'd also be right to point out that a greatest hits, top hits, top 40 approach to the music of women's rights, of black rights, of abolitionism, of civil rights, and anti-war protest, not to mention borrowing from sports talk show gibberish the acronym GOAT, greatest of all time, Well, to do any of that or use any of that to describe a song of deep cultural significance, well, quite frankly, it smacks of the trivial, if not sacrilege. But, and I agree, the case has been made that Billie Holiday's 1939 Strange Fruit is, indeed, the greatest protest song of all time. On almost any listing of top protest songs, Strange Fruit is among the top five, and... Amid a kaleidoscope of songs, it is the most frequently listed, and on most lists, it is number one. Its backstory might surprise you and will certainly dismay you. Singing it in nightclubs and cafes, Holiday always sang it as the last song in her set. She requested that the lights be dimmed, except for a spotlight on her face, and that waiters stop serving. When she finished singing, the spotlight off, and the house lights back on, the stage was empty. She did no encores. She sang her iconic version of the song for the first time on April 20, 1939. As her biography at biography.com notes, this was how Holiday performed Strange Fruit, which she would determinedly sing for the next 20 years until her untimely death at the age of 44. Named by Time magazine in 1999 as the Song of the Century, and referred to by Ahmed Erdogan, co-founder of Atlantic Records, as the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, Holiday's legendary song was written in 1937 by Russian-Jewish immigrant Abel Mirapol. A schoolteacher, Mirapol, who never witnessed an actual lynching, wrote the song as a poem under the pseudonym Lewis Allen after seeing Lawrence Beitler's photograph of the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Indiana. In 1971, Mirapol said, I wrote Strange Fruit because I hate lynching and I hate injustice and I hate the people who perpetuate it. Mirapol, who published the song in a teacher's union publication, had it set to music. A nightclub owner who heard it introduced it to Holiday, who, 
upon hearing it for the first time, said it reminded her of her father, who died at 39 when he was refused care at a hospital because he was a black man. Cafe Society, where Holiday first sang the song, was the first racially integrated nightclub in New York City. Ida Amoka says, What happened on the first night Holiday performed Strange Fruit foreshadowed the response it would get as a record. She quotes Holiday, who said, The first time I sang it, I thought it was a mistake. There wasn't even a patter of applause. Then a lone person began to clap nervously. Then, suddenly, everyone was clapping. Later, Mirapol would write, She gave a startling, most dramatic and effective interpretation which could jolt an audience out of its complacency anywhere. Not everyone approved. Holiday would be hounded for the rest of her life, in particular by Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner Harry Anslinger. As Holiday's Biography.com bio says, Anslinger, a known racist, believed that drugs caused black people to overstep their boundaries in American society and that black jazz singers, who smoked marijuana, created the devil's music. Knowing Holiday used drugs, he had some of his agents frame her, Holiday spent a year and a half in prison. When released, she was refused a cabaret singer's license. Barred from nightclub singing, she performed at concerts. Not able to escape, as one biographer says, not able to escape her demons, she began to use drugs again. Hospitalized in 1959, she was tormented by Anslinger's agents and died a short time later. Well, I hope Anslinger lived long enough to learn as our contemporary cultural counselors of the right and left will also learn, the truth ultimately can't be silenced. Holiday's song, bringing to life Mirapol's poem, excoriating the evil of racism, Holiday's song still resonates. Searing as its lyrics were in 1939, in 2021 they still resound. Southern trees bearing a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Here is Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Protest music, the sound of freedom, 
the sound of those masses Emma Lazarus said were yearning to be free, is, ironically, one of America's great contributions to world culture. Double irony, maybe such music could only exist in a free society, even if that society's freedom is unequally distributed and often fractured and often abused. Protest songs, topical songs, songs in the American grain, an integral and important thread, threads, in the American Tapestry Project. Today we heard a generous sample of songs, some very old, some newer, but all still fresh, celebrating freedom, reminding us freedom isn't free. Sometimes, sometimes you have to stand up for it, stand up and be counted. From the 19th century Hutchinson family singers to Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, Americans singing songs of freedom, reminding us of our values, reminding us of our obligations to one another, reminding us of our shared commitment to freedom under law, reminding us that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember their ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, Scholar-in-Residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Next month, an American child of the upper Midwest who said he only wanted to be Buddy Holly, but became the icon of cultural change, and then renounced his countercultural hero status, saying he never wanted to be a protest singer. What to make of Bob Dylan, who said he wasn't working on Maggie's farm no more. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you. You're listening to 91.3 FM, WQLN Erie, your listener-supported public radio station.